This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. It's good to see you. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor at Christian Chapel. If we haven't met, I'd love to say hi to you afterwards. Um, Dads, I'll try to remind you at the end of service, but just in case I don't, uh, please stop by the beef jerky bar because whatever you don't take, I'm going to eat. Um, And just on behalf of my wife and children, please take a lot with you today. So on Mother's Day, if if you were here, you know, we had a, a just like that beautiful flower bouquet set up back there. And as we looked at it, we thought, what kind of bouquet would men love? Clearly, beef jerky was the answer, uh, because I I don't know what else you would like to gather and and put together and take home with you. So be sure to stop by there, grab some of that. We are are thrilled that you're here with us. At Christian Chapel this year, we're sharing stories of what God has done before we uh, start preaching each week. And so if you have stories of God's healing, his provision, his salvation, other ways that he has acted in your life, please send those to us at praise at christianchapel.com. We're taking time each week to thank God for what he's done and also ask him to do those things again. This morning's story comes from Tim Grice. Tim says, in 2019, my wife Sarah gave birth to our son Gideon. When Gideon was around six months old, he was struggling to sleep, and as a result, I experienced many sleepless nights. During that time, previous symptoms from a heart condition a decade earlier returned. Eventually, Gideon started to sleep and the symptoms left. That is until two years later when our daughter Layla was born. Layla was born in January 2021. By the end of March and more sleepless nights, I was having serious issues with my heart. It took until May to get in to see a specialist, and he ran a battery of tests over the next couple of weeks. On June 21st, the cardiologist called me and asked if I could come to his office that day. I sat in his office and listened as he told me that the test results showed I had congestive heart failure. Based on the numbers and my symptoms, he indicated that I was in stage C. I asked if that was serious, and he said, unfortunately, yes, and went on to explain that there are four stages to congestive heart failure labeled A through D. He continued with the bad news by telling me that, unfortunately, there is no cure for congestive heart failure. Treatments aim to relieve symptoms and slow the progression to buy you more time. I asked him what the outlook was, and he told me about 35% of people with my condition survive for 10 years. However, it seems, he said, that your heart has been in decline for some time now. I left his office in a daze that day, thinking that my two babies might grow up without a dad. I decided I couldn't go back to work, and so I went shopping, which is a testament to how out of it I really was. While aimlessly walking around a store, my phone rang. I looked at the caller ID and noticed that it was my friend, Stephen Kurt, one of the Kingdom Builders missionaries that we support, and I knew he was calling from Africa. I remember thinking, it's in the middle of the night, why would he be calling me right now? I answered, and he said, Tim, God put you on my heart, and so I wanted to see how you're doing. Holding back tears, I told him about the appointment I had just left. He said, we need to pray. He began to pray, God, I lift my brother Tim up to you and ask three things. Whatever Tim needs to promote his health, please give him the courage and willpower to do it. I ask that you surround him with doctors, with wisdom beyond their training to help him. And thirdly, where man falls short, please, Lord, miraculously heal my brother. I knew the timing of his call and his faith-filled prayer were God-ordained. I hung up the phone with a renewed sense of hope. Soon I found a specialist who worked with people to restore heart health. I lost 60 pounds in 90 days as my diet changed and exercise increased. 
By the middle of October, I realized that I felt completely different. All of my previous symptoms were gone and my energy had returned. I called my cardiologist and asked if he would retest me. Initially, he declined, saying, as I explained, with your condition, improvement is unlikely, but any measurable change in four months is virtually impossible. I pressed him again, and finally he agreed. On November 1st, he scheduled my final test with a consultation to follow. When I came into his office that afternoon, he had a perplexed look on his face. He kept flipping between his papers and his laptop. He finally looked up and said, I can't explain this. I've never seen anything like this before, but your heart is completely normal. Tim went on to say that he took the opportunity to tell the doctor about the prayers, about how God had healed him, about how he led him to to do different things, to to be part of that process. And so this morning, as we're praying, we're thanking God for what he did in Tim's life. We're thanking God that uh, those two little kids get to grow up with dad in the home um, in in ways that, that will change their lives that they can't even fully understand. And we're also praying that God will do it again. And so I know this morning there are um, those of us in the room, we've got heart conditions. There are things going on, diagnoses that have been received. There are other sicknesses, illnesses, diseases, injuries, and traumas that we're dealing with. And what we believe this year is Jesus has called us to thank him for what he's done and also ask him to continue to do those things. And so if, if you have a physical need in your body this morning, if you're comfortable, I'd ask you just to reach over, grab the hand of the person sitting next to you, and we're going to pray and, and thank God for what he did for Tim and also ask him to do it again today. So let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today. We thank you for Tim's story. We thank you that you are a God who hears and a God who heals. We thank you, Lord, that even in the face of of terrible diagnosis like congestive heart failure, that you're still a God who acts. And in the spaces where there seems to be no hope, you can still release gifts of supernatural healing. And so we thank you for Tim. We thank you for the years you've given him that he had not anticipated. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to fill him with your strength, with your hope, and with your joy. Now, Lord, we ask what you have done for Tim. Will you do again today? Will you continue to release gifts of healing? We pray specifically, Lord, for those in the room or online with us who are suffering with heart issues, with heart conditions, with damage to their hearts as a result of sickness or injury or accident. Lord, today, will you reverse the effects of everything that has attacked their heart? Will you make them whole, healthy, and strong? Will you propel them forward into the future you have called them to? And we pray for every other physical need that is represented. Jesus, today we ask, will you release your gifts of healing? We thank you that these are not things that we can earn. They're not things that we can manipulate. They are just gifts that you release to your people as a sign of your grace. And so today we're asking, will you release gifts of healing among us? And as you do, Lord, we will receive them and we will give you all the glory and tell the stories of what you have done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, today we are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 6 this morning. Acts is a story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And so we've kind of been working our way through story by story and asking what did that mean then and what does that mean for us today? 
Last week we took a break. Pastor Amy uh, spoke last Sunday. If you were here, you enjoyed that. Her message actually kind of dovetailed pretty nicely into where we're going to be as we pick up the story of Acts again today. We're in Acts chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7, and it's a story of how obstacles are opportunities when we listen to Jesus, follow the Holy Spirit, and take our place in the church. Now, um, I, I don't know the, the situations that you all come in with this morning, but I know in, in my life there have been times where I have faced significant obstacles, and I've come to church, or I've been in a conference, or I've listened to a podcast or read a book, and something, some variation of this phrase behind me has been spoken of. Obstacles are opportunities to experience God's power and experience God's presence. And when I'm facing difficulties and I hear that message, it hits me in one of two ways, and they're two completely different extremes. So the, the first way it hits me is sometimes it fills me with faith and with hope. And I come knowing that I've got problems, I've come knowing that I'm facing difficulties and challenges, and I hear from the scriptures, I hear from the person preaching, from the book I'm reading, God sees me, he knows me, he loves me, he has a plan for me, this obstacle has not caught him by surprise, he's the God who goes before us, he's the God who works in all things, and it begins to lift my heart up off of my problems, it begins to lift my eyes up onto the God who's over them, I begin to hear the scriptures in my heart that the Lord is faithful that he will not abandon us, that he will not forsake us, that he will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, that he will guide us on right paths, that all things work for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that the things the enemy intended for evil, God intended for good, that in every space the enemy intended to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus has come to give life and life to the full. And I sit there and in the midst of obstacles and difficulties, my heart is buoyed, my soul is lifted up, and I begin to feel like God really is is going before me and all I've got to do is follow the path that he's laying out. And so if you're here this morning, that's how I hope you hear this message. But I also know realistically there are times that I've come in with serious problems, facing serious obstacles that I have been working to overcome and don't seem to find any hope in experiencing any form of victory in them. And I hear a pastor say, today we're going to hear and talk about how obstacles are opportunities and my response is a very cynical and crusty, will you just shut up? Like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's easy for you to say. You don't, you're not facing what I'm facing. You don't know who I know. You don't got the problems that I have. You've never lifted the weight I'm trying to carry. You've never dealt with the people that I'm dealing with. Right? And you just internally, you start to push back of like, you're just going to throw some Christian cliches at me. You're going to sprinkle on a few scriptures, and you're going to pat me on the back and send me on my way. And so, so my hope is regardless of how that hits you this morning, as we turn to the story of the early church in Acts, one of the things I love about it is it's the true story of the church. And the true story of the church is the church always faces obstacles. And we've already seen in Acts 1 through 5 that there are a lot of external obstacles that attack the church. There are people who persecute, there are imprisonments, there are beatings, there are threats. As we keep working through the story, we're going to find examples of people being martyred for their faith, sacrificing greatly for the cause of Christ. But this morning what we're going to see is sometimes the obstacles we face are actually internal in the Christian community. But what we'll understand from this story is the same thing we've understood from the others, is that when we surrender our lives to Jesus... When we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit and when we take our place in the church, 
God has the ability to turn every obstacle into an opportunity to hear his voice, discern his path, and experience his provision. And so whatever your problems may be this morning, my hope is that today the Spirit comes and begins to transform your heart, transform your mind, transform your vision to see that even though this isn't the path you would have chosen, even though these are not the problems you would have asked for, this is where you are, this is what you're dealing with. Jesus sees it, he knows it, and he has a plan to lead you from where you are that transforms this obstacle into an opportunity that draws you closer to him, closer to other believers and propels you down the path that results in his kingdom continuing to grow in your life and through your life. And so let's jump in. Acts chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can read along with me. If not, it'll be here on the screen. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the the story starts by acknowledging that obstacles are part of a growing church. And so it begins by telling us that the number of disciples continued to increase. And what we find is as the church was growing, we find our first example of internal conflict in the body of Christ. It says there was a group of widows who felt like they were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so they came and they complained to the apostles. And so, so again, what we find is, is this idea that if we are growing as a community of believers, we're going to experience obstacles. And those obstacles won't just come from the outside, from people who are opposed to the move of God, but those obstacles will often always include internal conflict, misunderstanding, and potential for division among people that God has called. You know, one of the the terms that is used for the the body of Christ is that we are the family of God. We are called brothers and sisters. We're called sons and daughters of Jesus. And so, so what that helps us understand is that in many ways, our experience of Christian community, our experience of the local church, reflects our experience of a family. And so on on Father's Day, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on our own families. And if you're a dad, or if you had a dad, or if you wanted to be a dad, or you wanted to have a dad, what every one of us know this morning is that anyone that has ever been a part of a family understands there's no such thing as a perfect family, right? Every family is a work in progress. You can find the most Jesus-loving family in the world. 
You can find the family that quotes scripture to each other when they wake up in the morning, that has family devotions around their very kosher breakfast in the, after, in the mid-morning, that gathers together for mid-afternoon prayers and prays their prayers and does their thankfuls before they go to bed at night, and they go to church and they do all the things that Christian families are supposed to do, and dad leads well and mom leads well and the kids are doing their best to be respectful, and you'll still find their family is a work in progress. Over the years, uh, Angie and I, we've been married for 22 years now. And in 22 years, uh, 18 of those years, we've been parents. And so in 18 years, I figured out there are two reasons why I don't have a perfect family. Um, the first reason is because I'm part of it. And it turns out that, um, you know, I am not a perfect person. It, it's surprising to me at times, uh, but, uh, but yet daily I'm reminded that I'm not. And that plays out in my family, you know. And, and then the, the other reason I figured out that our, our family isn't perfect is because of all of them. And so I'm not perfect, and they're not perfect. And, and some days, I, your houses, you probably don't have it, but some days we have the, the circular argument. We had it just a couple days ago in the car where my kids told me, Dad, you're really grumpy today. And I told them, I wasn't grumpy until you were born. And then we just kind of had these, like, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And, and, and they, I t- the other day they were telling Angie, you're really stressed out. I'm like, she was stress-free until you guys came along, right? We were fun and just carefree and did what we wanted and smiled and laughed and, and had money, uh, like, it was just it was great. Uh, and then, so, so you have this experience and you understand it. And none of us carry this unrealistic expectation of my family should be perfect and everything should always go well. But oftentimes, what we would never apply to our family, we apply to the family of God. And we think because I'm coming into the church and because I'm part of a Christian community and because everyone here says they love Jesus and they're trying to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and they want the fruit of the Spirit to be on display in their life, then I expect that somehow, even though I am still an imperfect person coming into this community, I expect everyone else around me to be perfect. And I expect you to be exceedingly gracious to me with my faults, even if I may be exceedingly judgmental towards you with yours. Right? I expect you to always meet my impatience with patience, to always meet my grumpiness with kindness. And what we find out is many people never experience the fullness of Christian community because they hold on to this false ideal that it's a perfect community. And so you, you can't get into a home group because you go once and you realize someone there is annoying, right? You, you can't get engaged in serving with others because you realize there's points of friction and tension and things that just don't always go well. But what Acts chapter 6 is teaching us is if you're part of a growing church, you are going to be part of a community that has to overcome obstacles, Because God's plan for the church is that the church will be a diverse church. That we will be a group of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nationality, every ethnicity, and every race. That we will be people from different political backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, and different economic backgrounds. That we will be those from the city and the suburbs and the rural communities. And that we will all be brought together into the body of Christ. And there will be some of us who will homeschool, and some of us who will private school, and some who will public, and some who will charter, and some who will do some other made-up kind that I haven't heard about yet, right? And he's bringing us all together, and his intention is that as we're brought together, we are part of his refining process in each other's lives. And what that means is a diverse community will always have to overcome obstacles because our differences can be a a way that we beautifully appreciate the, the community that God is building together, but they are also often a point of conflict and potential division. 
And that's exactly where the early church finds themselves. It says that the Hellenistic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews. Now, those two things don't mean anything to us today, but they meant a lot to the first century church. In Jerusalem, there were two primary groups of Jewish people. There were the Hellenistic Jews. These were people who had embraced more of a a Greek or a Roman background. They were people who, for the most part, had been sent out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, at some point during the different persecutions that, that hit the Jewish people in the nation of Israel. And so they'd grown up outside of the promised land. They'd grown up without Hebrew being their their heart language. They, in in many cases, had maybe embraced some of the customs of the Greek world, the Greek-speaking world. But then, when they would get old, they would desire to die in the promised land, the land that God had given to their ancestors. And so as older men, older women, they would move back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, they would live, but they were now absent of their support system. Their kids and their grandkids stayed in the lands that they had returned from. And so they would come, and and the Hellenistic Jews, when their husbands died, the widows especially, were incredibly vulnerable because they didn't have family in town to care for them. Now, the Hebraic Jews were those who they had stayed in Jerusalem. They had stayed in Israel. They had a connection to the land, to the culture, to the customs. And so there were these two differing groups, both fully devoted to the Lord, and yet there were cultural differences that had created division within Judaism. Now, when Jesus comes and the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh, both the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews are becoming Christians. And yet what happens here is one of the first obstacles that the church has to overcome is the division of culture. And what they're recognizing is, hey, our widows are not being cared for equally, and the sinful division of culture is beginning to creep its way into the church. And so the apostles recognize this, and it's kind of an inflection point. It's a turning point in the history of the church. Because in this early conflict, the church has the opportunity to do one of two things. They can either embrace the divisions of culture and say, okay, we're going to have Hellenistic Christians and we're going to have Hebraic Christians. Or they can decide Jesus has come to establish a completely new way of being, a completely new way of living, and we're all going to be united together in Christ. This is the path that the apostles choose. This is the path that the rest of the New Testament will advocate for. This is why Paul is going to write again and again and again in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Right? The first obstacle the church has to overcome is this obstacle of division. And so for you and I, whether we're thinking about the personal obstacles we face or the obstacles we're facing in our experience of community, the first thing we we just want to understand is just to be very realistic of it's fine when those things pop up. None of us come into the family of God as perfect people, and we're not surrounded by perfect people, so there will be moments of tension, there will be moments of division, but our responsibility is not to see those as proof that we've got it wrong, and so we should run away and isolate and just find the four Christians who agree with us on everything. But our response is, hey, let's work together, and let's begin to understand if there's an opportunity here. As you keep reading through the story in Acts, that's what you see, that opportunities are present in every obstacle. Verse 2, it says, The twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
And so when, when this obstacle of division was presented to the apostles, they do two things that turn the obstacle into an opportunity. And we'll kind of pay a little attention and spend some time here. The, the first thing they do is they acknowledge the obstacle. So uh, this, as a pastor, this, this passage is challenging and comforting to me. Uh, because it teaches me that from the formation of the church, church leaders have dealt with complaints. Right? And so, um, I mean, not that we do deal with that here, but I've heard there are pastors who do. Um, and, and so if they do, it's, it's an opportunity to say, hey, this is something we've dealt with since the very formation of the church. And what's interesting about the way the apostles handle this is the complaint comes, our widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. The apostles, their, their first thing they do is they acknowledge the problem. Right, as you read through that, there is no correction to the complaint. There are no excuses made for why it's happening. There is no, thank you for making us aware of that. We will get to that when we can, but we're working on more important things right now. There's just an immediate recognition of, you're right, that's a problem. And then the second part that the, the apostles recognize is, you're right, that's a problem, and we don't have the capacity to do anything about it. The apostles recognized that they were being stretched thin as leaders. That as the church was growing, as more and more people were coming to Christ, they are starting to understand we cannot do everything that's required to care for and to disciple all these people who are surrendering their lives to Jesus. The apostles understood the Old Testament command to care for widows and orphans. They wanted to be faithful to that command, but they also recognized that their primary responsibility was to preach and teach the word and to spend time in prayer. And so this obstacle has created more obstacles where they've realized it's a problem and we as the 12 can't actually do anything about it. But in their acknowledgement, they show us the first step in turning obstacles into opportunities is to admit that your obstacles are obstacles. And so you can think of this in the, the larger church as a whole. You can think of this in your life personally, that until you admit you have a problem, you're not going to deal with the problem. As long as you're using language to dress up your obstacles as anything but an obstacle, it will never become an opportunity. And so this morning, if the primary obstacle in your life is that your marriage is broken and you don't get along, this morning you have to come to the point where you're willing to admit that. Where you'll admit it to yourself, where you'll admit it to your spouse, where you will admit it to your friends. You can't keep trying to cover it up. You can't keep trying to just paint a smile on and pretend that everything is good. This morning, if, if your problem is your, your rebellious child who's turned, their, their faith, turned from their faith and turned their back on the Lord, you can't keep faking it. You can't keep pretending like it's okay. You've got to acknowledge that. You've got to embrace it. You've got to invite some other people into the process. This morning, if your problem is your finances, there comes a point where you just have to admit, the way I'm doing things doesn't work. I'm broke. I'm spending more than I make. The debt is building. The business isn't going how I thought it would go. If your problem is your health, you've got to come to the point where you're, you're not just kind of trying to cover it up, sweep it under the rug, not talk about it, not think about it, but you have to come to the point where you acknowledge, this is my problem. And the reason many of us don't want to admit our problem is because the moment we admit the problem, we also admit, and I can't do anything about it. The most significant obstacles you face are overwhelming, not just because of the nature of the obstacle, but of the seeming hopelessness that accompanies it. You don't see a way where the marriage can ever be made whole. You don't see how you can ever get through to your child. You don't understand how your finances could ever get back in order. You don't see how your health could ever return. And so it's easier to ignore it, to deny it, or to hide it than to face it. 
But the apostles model for us this idea of, no, we're going to face it full on. We're going to admit, yes, that's a, that's a problem. Yes, that's a place where we're blowing it. We're also going to admit, I can't do anything about that. And as you do that, your obstacle becomes an opportunity for you to recognize what God wants to do. So the first thing they do is they, they acknowledge the obstacle. The second thing they do is they identify the opportunity. So they, they basically tell the church, we have heard your complaint and we agree that this is a problem. We recognize we can't do anything about it, so here's the opportunity. The opportunity is we're going to put it back on the church, the group who's brought us the need, and we're going to say, all right, choose seven men from among you. And not just the first seven you find, but seven men who are full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, and we are going to entrust this responsibility to them so that we can do the things that God has called us to do. And what the apostles are modeling for us is the humility to release authority, the, uh, the humility to acknowledge we can't do everything all the time, and the humility to invite others into the process with us. For most of us, the, part of the opportunity that exists in your obstacle today is God's going to use it to take you into a deeper experience of community with others. When the apostles recognize the obstacle, the opportunity is to welcome others into a position of leadership which will create deeper connections and will deepen and broaden the foundation of the church so it can sustain the future growth that God is about to send to them. When you're facing obstacles this morning, one of the opportunities God is going to help you realize is this is an opportunity for me to admit my weakness, to admit that I need others, and to begin to open my heart and my life up to their influence. It means my marriage probably isn't going to be made whole without some inside input. It means that, that my marriage probably won't be what I want it to be until I'm willing to, to be mentored by someone else. It means I'm not going to know how to navigate this sticky situation with my kids without turning to some people who've already been where I am. It means that my finances and my health, they're probably not going to get in order until I'm willing to come and admit the problems and invite others in. And as we begin to identify the obstacle, acknowledge we can't do it on our own, God gives us the opportunity to take our place in community, to receive input and help from others, and to begin to learn that we are not just welcome in community when everything is good and everything is strong and everything is up and to the right, but in our lowest moments, in our darkest hours, in our most painful memories, in our most hopeless circumstances, we are welcomed, accepted, loved, and cared for in community. And as we begin to acknowledge those opportunities, we begin to find a level of strength and belonging that we have not previously known. And, and so, so we experience this personally, but we also experience it organizationally as a church. Right? The, the apostles, this again, it's, it's a key moment for several reasons. It's a key moment because they are refusing to let division creep into the church. It's also a key moment because they are setting the standard that in the church there is not a centralized power or person who oversees everyone else. Right? But the, the structure of the church is you're called to lead, I'm called to lead, we're going to lead to the limits of our capacity, and when we reach it, we're going to invite others to come alongside and serve with us. 
And so the apostles are setting the standard that the Christian church will be one with a very broad leadership structure. The Christian church will not be one where one man or one woman sits at the top of the pile and makes all of the decisions for everyone. But it will be one where each one of us recognizes two or three things that we have been called and equipped by God to do. And we're going to do them to the absolute best of our ability. And then as we come into obstacles that require other gifts, other abilities, we're going to identify other men, other women who are full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, who strengthened in those areas, and we're going to allow them to use the gifts God has given them to serve, and we are all going to grow stronger together. Right? The opportunity of these obstacles is an invitation to others to step up and step into the leadership positions that God has created for them. And at Christian Chapel, this is, this is a season of life that we're in right now as a church. This summer, our, our pastoral staff, our board of deacons, we're working through a process of, of understanding that the way we've done a lot of our ministry isn't working as well as the church continues to grow. And what we're recognizing is that, that our pastors, some of our, our key team leaders and volunteers, they are at capacity and there's still more stuff being added to them. And so what it's presenting us with is an opportunity to understand as God is bringing more people, we should be releasing more responsibility. We should be inviting others to lead, others to use their gifts, others to serve in the spaces where they have been empowered by the Spirit to serve. And so what we're, what we're trying to embrace at Christian Chapel is a truer model and experience of strengths-based service, where you have been gifted by God in certain ways, and we want you to use those gifts for the fullness of God's glory in this community. And so that means I'm going to focus on two or three things that God has uniquely called and equipped me to do. Our other pastors are going to do the same, and you're going to do the same. And as we are all doing that, what we'll find is our body will become stronger than we've ever been, our reach will go farther than it's ever gone, and we will be more ready to welcome in the new disciples that Jesus continues to bring to us, because the church was never intended to be a place where a handful of people do all the work, receive all the applause, and everybody else just sits around and then goes home. But it's a place where everybody participates, where everybody joins in, where everybody is gifted, and everyone takes ownership and responsibility. And this is what Acts chapter 6 is modeling for us. Hey, when the obstacle is you're not doing it well, the opportunity is let's do it better. And the way we're going to do it better is not by four or five people or 12 or 15 people doing even more work at a higher level. We're going to do it better by all of us discerning where is God calling me, who is God calling me to invite, where can I empower others, and where can we all lead together. And as we do that, we begin to see how God turns every obstacle into an opportunity. So the, the apostles, they recognize this is what God is calling us to do. We've got to diversify our leadership. We've got to give responsibility away. Now, so they, they've recognized the obstacle. They've recognized the opportunity. But the, the last step in that process is where some of us get stuck at times. They have to take action. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but there are times in my life where I know I've had an obstacle, I have recognized the opportunity that lives in it, and yet I have failed to take action, and so it has remained an obstacle. Right? I, I remember times in my life where the obstacle was I was spending more money than I was making. And it was an opportunity for me to learn financial discipline. It was an opportunity for me to learn uh, to be a better steward. And I knew the path I needed to take, but I failed to take the action. Right? I 
kept buying the expensive coffees. I kept figuring out somehow how to go out to dinner eight times a week. Uh, I kept to do, doing some of the things that I knew I just shouldn't be doing anymore. I remember about when I was 25 years old, I, I, uh, maybe you remember this time in your life too, where your metabolism suddenly changes. Anybody remember that? Maybe at different ages, different people, but um, my, my whole life up to that point, for as long as I could remember, I could sit down and, you know, my, my mom, when I was growing up, Angie, when we first got married, would buy the, the big, like, family pack of Oreos, and so I think there's three or four rows that were in it, um, and so I, I would, 24 ounces of milk and one whole row of Oreos was an acceptable 9 p.m. snack every night, and so I would eat that over and over, and at about 25, I realized this is an obstacle, because it was all settling right in here. And, and so, you know, I, I saw this as an opportunity to do something different. So I, I cut back to half a sleeve um, and 16 ounces of milk. And, and it, it kind of, you know, it, it helped stay. It didn't get better, but it didn't get worse. And in about 35, I realized, like, there's, there comes a point where half a sleeve is now ridiculous. And, and so currently I'm at, at four. I can have four Oreos and eight, eight ounces of milk and still sleep at night, right? Otherwise, you've reached that point of I just lay in bed thinking, why did, I, why did I do that? Now, now, what the action I really need to take is to stop eating Oreos. But I'm not there yet, right? You might be, and good for you. I'm still living under grace, and, and I'll get there one day, but I'm not there yet, but I will, but I know the action I need to take. I'm just not willing to take it. And sometimes we find the same thing in our marriage, in our finances, in our health, in much more serious areas where we understand the obstacle we're facing. We understand the opportunity that God has given us. We know the path we need to take. We just, for whatever reason, are hesitant to take those first couple steps down that road. But if you'll just start walking it, you'll start to experience the grace, the mercy, and the provision of God. And there might be some moments that are kind of scary. There's going to be some change in things that are done differently. But for an obstacle to turn into an opportunity, you have to walk the path of opportunity. And that's what is modeled for us in Acts chapter 6. There are three groups of people who have to take action. The first is the apostles. The apostles find we're facing a problem we can't deal with. It's beyond our capacity to deal with it. To do so would take our attention away from what we're supposed to do. So we need to empower others. And so the action they take is one of humility, recognizing they can't do it all. It's also one of valuing the contributions of others. It's not that the apostles think they're too good to wait on tables or think that they're too important to care for widows. They just recognize God has uniquely called and equipped us to do these two or three things. And so we need to find others who God has uniquely called and equipped to do these things. And so they begin to give away this leadership. They also invite the church to take participation with them. So they have to be willing to say, we can't answer this question on our own. So their action is one of humility, obedience, and an invitation to others to solve the problem with them. The second group who has to take action is the seven men who are selected. Stephen and Philip and Nicholas and the others who are chosen. They, what we know from the story is they don't necessarily quit the jobs they had before. It's not like they lay aside their other roles and only become now administrators in the local church. In fact, we'll see later, Stephen and Philip continue in some form of evangelistic and teaching work themselves. And and so what we're understanding is sometimes an obstacle becomes an opportunity for us to step into new positions of leadership, new positions of responsibility, new places where we're going to use our gifts, and that's going to stretch us, and it's going to call us into a new season, and we've got to be willing to step up into that. This plan only works because seven men said, yes, we'll do it. 
Right, the, the other reason it's kind of risky is this shift in leadership represents not only a distribution of authority from the apostles, it also represents a diversification in leadership from the Hebraic Jews to include the Hellenistic Jews as well. So I, I don't know if you noticed as we read it through that portion of Acts, but all seven men who are selected have Greek names. And so the implication is that the apostles, with the participation of the local church, have intentionally invited those in from the group that thought they were being overlooked. And it was a way for the apostles to affirm, we are all now one in Christ Jesus. It was a way for those who felt like they were being overlooked to feel like now our voice is being heard. But more than any of that, it was a way for all of them to understand, we're not going to have Hellenistic Christians and Hebraic Christians, we're just going to be Christians. And so we're going to take action. They're willing to step into the space. And then the third group that had to to take action was the local church itself. The widows who had complained, the others who had come up with this new solution. And the action they had to take was embracing the idea that growing churches change. They had to embrace the change. They had to recognize it's not going to be how it's always been. We have to move forward on the path that God is calling us to. And so for you and I, individually, when we're facing obstacles and they're turning into opportunities, it will almost always involve some form of change. You won't keep doing the same things you've always done the same way you've always done them. And so as God leads you onto this new path, you have to be willing and open to that. For us as a church, it means as we continue to follow the path God has for us, things will continue to change. We won't keep doing everything the same way all the time. We won't have the same 10 people in our home group always and forever. We won't always sit by the same person or serve by the same person. We won't always have the same programs, the same ministries, the same models. We will serve the same Lord. We will have the same commitment to each other. But outside of those things, we're going to let God lead us and guide us. We're going to stay anchored in the truth of the scriptures. We're going to stay held together by an experience of the Spirit, but we're going to let all of our models and all of our methods be used by God to their full effectiveness, and then when their effectiveness wanes, we're going to let him lead us on a new path. It means we're going to collectively make a decision as a church that we will never be the ones who say, we don't do it that way here, or that's not the way we used to do it, or that's not the way it's always been, but we're always going to listen, we're always going to hear God's voice, and we're always going to be willing to move forward on the path he's calling us to. Then as you, as you finish up in Acts chapter 6, in our passage this morning, you see that growing churches turn obstacles into opportunities. In verse 7 it says, So the word of God spread, the number of, dis- of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So as the apostles turned obstacles into opportunities, two good things happen. One, the church keeps growing, and two, God sends more leaders. And we will see the same thing. You'll see it in your life. We'll see it at Christian Chapel. As we are willing to turn obstacles into opportunities, as we're willing to take action as God directs, the church will continue to grow. For the church to grow in first century Jerusalem, they had to expand their pool of leaders. The 12 apostles couldn't do it all themselves. And so as they invite these seven men in, it's not now the 19 and no more, but it's the first step of increasing the responsibility of leadership in the church. 
And as, as, as they will then launch out around the world, they are raising up more and more men and women who are equipped to be leaders in the local churches where they go. And everywhere the local church is established by glorifying Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit, what you will find is leadership is constantly being spread out. Authority is constantly being shared. Responsibility is constantly being owned. And the reason that has to happen is because everywhere the gospel goes, the gospel grows grows. And as the gospel grows, one or two men or women, one or two highly talented people cannot continue to disciple everyone that God is going to bring into a relationship with Jesus in a community. And so what we're experiencing at Christian Chapel is this inflection point, this turning point where we have to decide to walk into our next great chapter as a church. We all have to step up and step into the responsibilities that God has given to us. We all have to begin to ask God, where have you uniquely called and equipped me because more people are coming because more disciples need to be made because more marriages need to find wholeness because more people need to turn their lives back to Jesus and they're waiting for you to be in a place where you're saying hey we're here and we're ready because we're stretched thin and we're at capacity but it's not because we're out of people it's just more opportunity for more to step into positions of leadership and responsibility and as we do the church grows We see it several times in the book of Acts that God prepares the local church for seasons of revival and conversion. First, by expanding the pool of leaders. And as he expands the pool of leaders of mature believers who are ready to receive and to make disciples, then he begins to give them opportunities with those who have placed their faith in Christ. And then the, the last thing we see in the story is that, that as you're growing as a church, as you're releasing responsibility, God just continues to send more leaders your way. The, the closing line of this passage says that and many priests place their faith in Jesus. And, it, and it's important because the priests were those whose lives had been saturated in the scripture. They were those who were familiar with leadership and administration. They were those who knew what it was to form a local community and to lead them in the ways of God. And as we get into the story of Acts here, just over the next couple weeks, what we're going to find is an intense wave of persecution that strikes the church in Jerusalem, and the believers begin to spread all over the known world at the time. But they're not just spreading as new disciples who barely know Jesus. They're spreading as those who've been entrusted with leadership responsibility, those who have taken ownership of their faith and in the community. And this new group of priests becomes part of the wave of new church leaders that will take the gospel to places it's never been, to establish churches, to grow the faith in places where God has plans for men and women to come to faith in Christ by the droves. And so today we continue to believe that as God leads us and guides us, as we share the responsibilities he has for us, he will continue to send more people to serve with us. And that the church should never be a place that has a shortage of people willing to use their gifts for the glory of God. It should be a place where we're standing in line saying, I've got an idea, I've got a plan, this is what God has called me to do, and where we are constantly releasing and empowering each other to do that. We stand with me, I want to pray for us. The band's going to come back and lead us in a final song today. Jesus, we come to you today and we we believe that you are still the God who can turn every obstacle into an opportunity. Lord, today you see each person, you know those who've surrendered their lives to you and you know those who are on the verge of taking their place in your kingdom and your family. 
Today, Lord, we ask if there is anyone who has not had that relationship with you today, help them to confess their sins, to repent and turn away, and to accept you as their Savior and Lord. And Jesus, as they do, we believe that you will welcome them into an experience of light and life, of hope, salvation, joy, and peace. Lord, I pray for those who are facing obstacles in their lives today. Will you come and remind us that you see us and you know us, that you have a plan to turn this into an opportunity for us to experience your grace, your mercy, and your provision. Today, Lord, give us the humility to admit our problems, to ask for your guidance, and the courage to follow the path that you lay out before us. And Lord, as your sons and your daughters who've taken our place in your kingdom, we ask that you would show us the areas where you are calling us to step up and step into leadership, step into influence, step into responsibility, to not just sit back and watch others do it, but to join alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ arm in arm to move forward with the cause of your kingdom in our community and all over the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.